the fifth kind. Check out our official website at www.thefifthkind.com where you can sign up to receive our latest newsletters, stories, and select featured content that is only available on alternative platforms. I've been a preacher for more than 30 years. I've studied and taught through the book of Genesis many, many times in churches all around the world. And I've trained pastors in the skills of interpreting texts. Enoch walked with the Elohim, walked with the powerful ones to translate it. And then he was not because the powerful ones took him away. The book of Enoch unpacks what walking with the powerful ones meant and unpacks it in astonishing detail. 200 watchers coming to planet Earth and hybridizing with human females resulting in giants, well, that's a narrative that you can find repeated. It's there in Genesis 6, but it's there in the narratives of cultures all around the world. The Book of Enoch, Mamiwata, and Alien Abductions. In 1984, a 26-year-old woman appeared on the beach of Anloga, a coastal town in the Kita district of the Volta region of Ghana, West Africa. When she walked into her family home, her relatives embraced her with joy and confusion. She had been missing for three years. Her family was full of questions. Why had she vanished? Where had she gone? And what had happened to her in the intervening years? The story the young woman told them left her family worried and confused. The young woman explained that she had been kidnapped while walking on the beach and taken to a community far away where she had been held captive. She had lived among her captors for three years and in that time had been forced to bear children. But the most shocking part of the young woman's story was still to come. Her family pressed her to tell them where she had been living, why she hadn't been able to contact them and who had taken her. Finally, she told them. She had been taken from the beach to an underwater base. The people had taken her in order for her to produce children. And most disturbing of all, the people who had taken her were not human. They were the Mami Water people. You can find the Mamiwata tradition all up the western seaboard of Africa and into the Caribbean. And it takes different forms in different places and different names are used in different parts of the world. But it's all essentially the same story. On first hearing, it sounds like western stories of mermaids or the Greek story of the sirens. The Mamiwata people are described as very beautiful, often female, and they abduct people near the water's edge. Now, you might think, well, that just sounds like some kind of a cautionary tale to tell the young men to behave and not be tempted or to stay safe and not go near the water. But what interests me about this tradition is that it is thousands of years old, long before the name Mamiwata was given to it. And in particular, what intrigues me is this narrative of abductions, 
which goes back thousands upon thousands of years. Now, what this young lady told her family was in no way a story of convenience. Uh, my family is actually one degree removed from that family, and I can tell you that she did not tell that story to help herself. If you think about it, somebody presenting with a story like that, it's not going to help them. It's not going to help them be accepted. It's not going to help them get a job. They're more likely to be locked up and medicated. People know that, and so when they are prepared to share a story like that, it merits that we listen to it with respect. And the fact that this narrative is so wide and goes back so far suggests to me that we need to give it some more serious attention. It's actually part of a bigger narrative and an even more ancient one. And I'm talking about the Book of Enoch. The origins of the Book of Enoch are rooted in the Hebrew tradition. Scholars generally agree that the various parts of the Book of Enoch were authored in the second and third centuries BCE. The writing may have encapsulated an oral tradition, going even further back in history. The book is titled with the name of Enoch. According to the Book of Genesis, Enoch was the father of Methuselah. Who was the father of Lamech? Who was the father of Noah? Enoch is probably the world's first abductee, albeit probably a willing one. There's a section in the book where Enoch is given a year's notice before being taken away from his family. If I read about Enoch in the book of Genesis, I'll find him in chapter five, where it says this: Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. My book, Escaping from Eden, argues that that's actually a mistranslation. The text is about the Elohim, and the word Elohim often gets translated as God, but it is a plural form word, and it takes plural verbs. So the way that text really reads is that Enoch walked with. The Elohim walked with the powerful ones to translate it, and then he was not because the powerful ones took him away. Now that's in effect a summary of the story of Enoch from the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch unpacks what walking with the powerful ones meant, and unpacks it in astonishing detail. The Book of Enoch comprises several works. In the Book of Watchers, Enoch tells the story of human females being abducted and impregnated by beings who arrive on Earth from their stations in the sky. It goes on to describe the writer's journeys through the cosmos, discovering truths previously hidden from humanity concerning other dimensions. The Book of Parables speaks more of Enoch's journeys and speaks of God's judgment of the Watchers and plans for humanity. It holds out the promise of a heavenly Messiah. In the book of heavenly luminaries, Enoch is shown around the galaxy by an entity called Uriel. Whether through a physical journey, or astral travel, or simple tutelage, Uriel instructs him in astronomy and the laws of the cosmos. Enoch describes what he has been shown. On the basis of his geocentric worldview, 
in which he pictured the earth as flat and covered by a dome-like canopy. It is in those terms that he interprets what he's being shown. And yet the motif of a human being being shown astronomy by an advanced being finds echoes elsewhere in the Hebrew tradition. The prophet Ezekiel describes his experience in more physical terms. The prophet Ezekiel reports an experience of being picked up in a flying craft. In his experience, a human-like pilot flies him around various cities of ancient Iraq before finally depositing him in Tel Aviv. In the past, scholars have assumed that Ezekiel was describing a vision. But might the writer have been describing something real and material, something that today we would call an alien abduction? The Book of Enoch and the Book of Ezekiel would be described as apocalyptic literature. Now, what apocalyptic literature means is that the writer has seen something that he he doesn't know what it is, he doesn't know what it means, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And so, in essence, he simply reports what he saw and experienced because he knows it's significant and then wants the reader to unpack the significance of it. Now, Ezekiel doesn't describe this as a vision. He says where he was when this craft appeared and picked him up, where it flew him, the places he saw, and where he was dropped off, and the state he was in after he had been dropped off. He said he was so disoriented he couldn't speak for a further seven days. And it's kind of amusing because all the time he's being flown around, the pilot, who he describes as... He was like a human being. He was like a son of man. The pilot is trying to talk to Ezekiel about religion and politics, but all the while Ezekiel is fascinated by the craft that he's in. He's describing what he's seeing and hearing. All the time he's looking around saying, this thing is amazing, this metal, what is this metal? It's so shiny. How do these wheels work? This glass canopy, I've never seen anything like that. And what is that roaring sound every time we move? He's trying to get his head around the craft that he's being carried in, which he describes as uh, Yahweh's habitation or as the glory, because he has no other language with which to describe it. To the modern eye and the modern ear, we see and hear his report. I think we have a pretty shrewd idea what he's describing. I think when we dismiss it and say it's a vision, we're actually doing what we do to all contactees and abductees and experiences. We sort of put our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 because what we're seeing and hearing contradicts our worldview. The worldview that says we are alone in the universe. End of story. The claims of the book of Ezekiel find support in other ancient literature. Flying and spacefaring craft are described in the Hindu texts of the Bhagavad Gita. Similar craft are depicted in the ancient wall art of Egypt and Mesoamerica. In the Book of Enoch, the writer describes journeys which take him far beyond those of Ezekiel and even far beyond our solar system. Ezekiel's travels around Iraq were just earthbound travels. He's just flying. Whereas Enoch describes travels around the galaxy. And he's being guided by this strange entity called Uriel, a non-human entity. 
Now it's unclear whether he's being taken on a physical journey at that point, or if he's being shown a textbook, or if he's astral traveling. And it's very clear that he's trying to interpret this through his own worldview. But in one way or another, he's being shown the position of the stars, the heavenly bodies, how they move, and how they relate to each other. And this theme of astronomical information is a little bit anomalous in the Bible, but it actually rings bells with narratives and mythologies from all around the world. You can think about the Mayan calendar, the Aztecs, the Sumerians, the Egyptians. All of them had precise astronomical information in their mythologies. And you read that and you think, how could they possibly have had access to that information all that time ago? One of the most dramatic examples is the Dogon people of Mali. When the anthropologists got into conversation with their shamanic elders, they spoke about information they had to do with the Sirius star system. First of all, they knew that there was a three-star system, something we didn't know about until the 20th century. And when the anthropologists asked them, how do you have all this information about the Sirius star system? They said, oh, we learned that from the people who taught us. They were from Sirius C. So there's a pattern in the world's ancestral narratives and ancient mythologies of precise astronomical information being encoded within very ancient stories. And we can see aspects of that, an echo of that in the Book of Enoch. He's getting his information from a non-human entity called Uriel, who's giving him a little bit of an education on the solar system. The Book of Enoch describes in dramatic detail a period in which 200 watchers arrive on planet Earth and begin abducting human females. With these women, the watchers produce hybrid beings who are human in form, but far larger than normal human beings. Mythologies around the world corroborate the Book of Enoch's account of abductions by extraterrestrial presences exiled on planet Earth. Although quoted verbatim in the New Testament letter of Jude and accepted as scripture by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Book of Enoch has never been included in the internationally accepted canons of scripture for either Judaism or Christianity. The fact that the Book of Enoch isn't in the official canons of Scripture, I don't think is particularly important. First of all, we should acknowledge that it is in the canon of the Bible in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. It was quoted by Clement of Alexandria, one of the most significant of the early church fathers, as if it was Scripture. The Book of Jude, when he wants to quote the Enoch of the Bible, he quotes the Book of Enoch word by word. He assumes that his readers, his New Testament readers, have read the Book of Enoch. I think the significance of that really can't be exaggerated. The stories told in the Book of Enoch are really an unpacking of narratives that we find in canonical books, Genesis, Ezekiel, the Gospels, and the New Testament. So in that sense, it's a book that believers shouldn't be frightened of reading. It is a book absolutely affirmed by the canonical scriptures themselves. 
The Book of Enoch's story of 200 watchers coming to planet Earth and hybridizing with human females, resulting in giants, well, that's a narrative that you can find repeated. It's there in Genesis 6, but it's there in the narratives of cultures all around the world. You can find it in African stories, Indian stories, Greek stories, the Sumerian stories. It's there in Genesis chapter 6 and in the narratives of cultures all around the world. And the story is always the same. Beings of another kind coming to planet Earth, hybridizing and interbreeding with human females and resulting in a different kind of being called a giant or a titan or a Nephilim. In the West, these ancient accounts of abduction and interbreeding have been read as fables. The beings exiled to Earth are interpreted as mythical beings or nothing more than literary creations. Some interpret the Watchers of Enoch and the Mamiwata people as spiritual beings rather than a species like ourselves. But this explanation fails to account for the narrative of interbreeding. Many of the Christian and shamanic traditions of Africa take a more concrete view. Now, some would say these watchers are angels, but the word angel doesn't tell us what kind of being they are. What we can say is that they come from space, that they are physical every bit as much as we are, that they are similar enough to us to be able to hybridize with us, different enough that the result of that hybridization is different to us. They can travel great distances with great rapidity, maybe even interdimensionally. They come from the sky and they intervene harmfully in human affairs. Now, by any account, that sounds to me an awful lot like an extraterrestrial. Serious studies have been made into the area of ET abduction syndrome. The late Professor John Mack was Harvard's head of clinical psychology. In the 1990s, U.S. Defense tasked Professor Mack with investigating the psychology of military personnel who had filed reports of close encounters with extraterrestrials. As he continued his investigation, patterns began emerging in their reports. His technique included supplementary questions which gave his subjects no opportunity to prepare or collude in what they were describing. Professor Mack then widened his sample base to include civil aviation operatives who had filed similar reports. The conclusions he brought to U.S. defense were that these were not cases of psychosis or hallucination. These operatives had been in contact with something real that merited further serious study. In 2009, Pope Benedict XVI called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene a colloquium to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. The colloquium gathered 30 leading scholars and theologians. Among those who brought its findings to the press was one of the Vatican's most senior experts in paranormal phenomena, Monsignor Corrado Balducci, a leading exorcist for the Roman Catholic Church. He explained that when contactees and abductees report their close encounters, 
they are not describing psychotic episodes or demonic encounters. Rather, they have been in contact with a completely different kind of entity, one which merits more serious study. Another area meriting more serious study was identified by famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan in the 1960s. His comments were prompted by another ancient mythology concerning beings who were in appearance part human and part aquatic. The Apkalu were beings described in a Babylonian mythology that was written down by a Greek priest called Barossus in the 3rd century BCE. Barossus described the Apkalu as part human, part aquatic. And that's a theme that recurs in the African Mamiwata tradition and in the Caribbean and in other mythologies around the world. And we see depictions of entities that are part human, part aquatic in many diverse cultures, seemingly with no contact with each other. Barossus goes on to talk about one of the leaders of the Apkalu, Oannes, and describes that they took a role in nurturing early humanity providing our ancestors with the basic tools of civilization to set us on our journey as a human civilization. In 1962, while at Berkeley, a young Carl Sagan wrote a paper titled Direct Contact Among Galactic Civilizations by Relativistic Interstellar Spacecraft. In the paper, he wrote, There is the statistical likelihood that Earth was visited by an advanced extraterrestrial civilization at least once during historical times. On page 497 of his study, Sagan speculates that the number of such visits could be as many as 10,000. Sagan wrote, There are other legends which deserve serious study in the present context. As one example, we may mention the Babylonian account of the generation of the Sumerian civilization by the Apkalu, representatives of an advanced non-human and possibly extraterrestrial society. Four years later, in a collaboration with the Ukrainian scientist I. S. Shuklovsky, titled Intelligent Life in the Universe, Carl Sagan wrote, Stories like the Oannes legend, deserve much more in critical studies than have been performed heretofore. With the possibility of direct contact with an extraterrestrial civilization as one of the many possible explanations. Or could an intervention by an extraterrestrial civilization like the Apkalu explain why, all of a sudden, from out of the blue, in ancient Sumeria, you have civilization springing up, complete with mathematics, complex astronomy, civil engineering, streetscapes, banking, money, a legal system, culture and literature. I mean, that is a major, major leap forward for Homo sapiens that needs some major, major explaining. It seems to me that we would make better sense of that leap in the story if we allow for the possibility of an external intervention. And that's exactly what the story of the Apkalu is. And just how curious that the physical descriptions of the Apkalu correlate so closely with the ancient stories of the Mamiwata people. 
In the United States of America alone, more than half a million people go missing every year. In the year 2018, 612,846 new people were registered as missing. Some are cases of misadventure. An unconfirmed number proved to be cases of slavery and sex trafficking. Others are cases of violent crime. Thankfully, the majority of missing persons return, and some are later found. However, approximately 15%, around 90,000 each year, remain unexplained. Year after year, thousands of people go missing just in America's national parks. In fact, the figure is so disturbing that the park authorities are told not to keep a record of them. And I'm not talking about people who wandered off the path and got lost. I'm talking about people who are in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a baseball game, and all of a sudden, one of them vanishes. Now, we have no mythology or science to account for that. And the horror of those figures ought to disturb us a lot more than having to listen to a report that offends our worldview. So I'm with Monsignor Balducci and John Mack in saying that what they have encountered merits far more serious study than has been given to the phenomenon. One fascinating aspect of the Book of Enoch is that of the extraterrestrial being Uriel, who tutors Enoch with an education in the cosmos. Speaking of humanity's place in the universe, the astronomical home of the powerful ones, and the workings of the solar system. This motif of advanced knowledge being imparted by people from the stars is a theme that can be found in other indigenous narratives, and sometimes with surprising proofs of their claims. My interest in cases of abduction is as a student of the world's mythologies, and it grieves me that we so impoverish ourselves by refusing to listen to the report of people whose experiences don't fit in our boxes. As people become aware of my book Escaping from Eden, I am contacted every single day by people who have had experiences and close encounters, some of them abduction experiences, but they have not told anyone in decades. Often I'll have people say, I experienced this when I was 15 years old, something like that. I have told my wife, I've told the person I was with when I experienced it, And in the 50 years since, I haven't told another living, breathing soul. But I want to tell you, because I still need to process what happened to me. That is the effect of the ridicule and shame that we're so ready to visit upon anybody who has an experience that offends our worldview. And I think it's time that that changed. We need to listen to the experience of those around us. And as we do, we will find out there is far more going on in our world than we have ever given credit for. I think in the West, we tend to regard these as psychiatric phenomena, and we probably conceive of it as a post-1950s phenomenon. But that couldn't be further from the truth. It is an ancient phenomenon. It's part of our mythologies. 
And again, I'd say it's not the kind of story you make up to advantage yourself. You're not going to make money or get promotions from bringing this kind of report. It's something that you know is going to damage your reputation if you share it. And that's why I'm with John Mack and Monsignor Corrado Balducci saying that we need to listen with respect to these reports and understand that it's a different kind of entity we're hearing about and that this is something that merits serious study. What we're being offered by the Book of Enoch and the Mami Water tradition is a context for these stories, a wider context and a longer context from cultures all around the world, a context that goes back thousands of years. Is the theme of advanced knowledge purely fiction? Is it a cover for prehistoric genius, an insight that is purely human? And why does the theme of humans being tutored by higher beings recur so widely among Earth's indigenous cultures? Is it possible that insight into these questions might be gained by listening to the experience of those who have claimed contact with extraterrestrials, including those like the young lady in Anloga, Ghana, who claimed to have lived for three years among the Mamiwata people. Might there be a link between their experiences, the legend of Oannes and the Apkalu, and the giant leap forward experienced by humanity in the distant past? It's intriguing to me that as well as this ancient story of a great leap forward in our evolution as a species being aided, by an ET intervention, we also have the report of returnees. I'm one person removed from two individuals who return from their contact with greatly enhanced cognitive abilities. One had a notebook that was just filled with advanced calculus because that was what his mind was full of after his experience. Something quite different to how he was previously. Now, they didn't come back boasting, saying, oh, I had this amazing thing happen to me, and now I'm a genius. People often don't talk about this aspect of the experience because they don't want to become a case study. They don't want to be incarcerated and probed and prodded to work out what's really going on. There is far more of that kind of experience than is commonly reported. It's curious because it's a form of acquired savant syndrome, and this is a real-world phenomenon studied by credentialed neuroscientists around the world, where a brain injury or a central nervous system event or a trauma will release prodigious cognitive abilities that the person did not have before. And it's often described as a disinhibition of brain functions. Quietly returnees often report that kind of experience. I note that because it's part of the Mami Water tradition as well. The payoff, one of the promises made to the person who is abducted, is that they will return with a higher intelligence, with higher consciousness. That is part of the package that this contact with these other beings is promising. How intriguing that it's part of that narrative too. The Book of Enoch tells a story that seems foreign to Western ears. 
with its reference to a non-human population resident on Earth, it appears at odds with the familiar stories of our mainstream religions. But to people like the Dogon tribe of Mali, with their memory of friends from the Sirius star system, or the Cherokee people of North America, with their memories of people from the Pleiades, or people from African and Caribbean cultures familiar with Mamiwata, many of its themes were strangely familiar. Those who had brought reports of contact with the Mamiwata people and other returnees around the world may find comfort knowing that this generation is not the first to claim abduction by a non-human presence on planet Earth. If we can learn to listen with respect to our mythologies and to the stories of those who claim to be contactees and returnees, what new insights might we then gain about humanity's place in the cosmos? The Qumran Caves on the northern shore of the Dead Sea. It was in caves hidden in these Judean mountains that an ancient religious community hid its precious archives of papyrus scrolls and manuscripts. In 1947, a shepherd throwing rocks was surprised by the sound of a breaking pot. When he investigated, he realized he had stumbled upon an incredible treasure trove of ancient texts. Between eight and nine hundred manuscripts have since been recovered, among them some of the most important historic and religious texts ever found. Among them, the Book of Enoch. The earliest version of the Book of Enoch is the Ethiopian book. Ethiopia is home to the one church communion that accepts the Book of Enoch within the canon of the Bible. The Ethiopian book comprises the Book of Watchers, the Parables of Enoch, the Astronomical Book or the Book of Luminaries, the Book of Dreams, and the Epistle of Enoch. Many of its themes echo the aspirations and concerns of many of the Hebrew scriptures, but other themes occur within its pages that are more unusual. The current scrolls date from the 3rd to the 1st century BCE. The source of their narratives and their authorship remain a mystery. The book is attributed to Enoch, but that doesn't settle the question of its authorship because just as the historic Moses didn't necessarily write all the books of Moses, or the prophet Isaiah didn't necessarily write all the books of Isaiah, so the authorship of the book of Enoch remains a bit of a mystery. But Enoch himself is a fascinating figure and very intriguing. He's an ancestor of Noah, Noah is his great-grandson, and he himself, Enoch, is the great-great-great-great-grandson of Adam and Eve, which, if you think about it, if I'm doing my maths right, means he had 62 other great-great-great-great-grandparents in the same generation as Adam and Eve. So, just taking the narrative on its own terms, who were they? I mean, that's a mystery on a mystery. Scholars believe the Qumran community to have been home to the Essenes, a secretive monastic community 
and the caves in the Judean mountains, their high-security archive. The evidence is that the Qumran community was part of the movement of Essenes, which was a monastic-style community of that time. And you can see why they would have loved the book. There are many themes that would have been important to them. But there's a section in chapters 85 to 90 of prophetic texts, and many people read them as prophesying the advent of various tribes and empires, and then they appear to foretell the advent of the Essenes themselves. And then Jesus of Nazareth, and then the 12 apostles of Christianity. And it wasn't only the Essenes who held this book in high regard. Many of the early church fathers quoted from this book freely, and they referred to it as to scripture. And that would include writers like Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, all referring to this as if it were part of their canon. Given the high regard in which the book was held in ancient times, what was it about the book's contents that made it so controversial that it had to be excluded from the official canons? In chapters 1 to 36, we read the Book of Watches. It details contact between entities from off-planet and human beings. Some of that contact is benign and nurtures the emergence of human society. The watches teach the humans how to cultivate crops, how to use medicine and other healing modalities. The watches teach metal technology and introduce the humans to adornments, jewelry and makeup. That aspect of off-planet people, the watchers coming and teaching Homo sapiens how to farm and to build a civilization, that marks the Book of Enoch out as very different to the books that we find within the canon of the Bible. But it is not a unique story. That narrative repeats in mythologies all around the world. You can find it in Native American mythology, Mayan, Zulu, Babylonian, all make the claim that in our prehistoric past there was an intervention. People from off-planet came and nurtured the human race as a conscious, intelligent, technological species and gave us the building blocks of civilization. But though that narrative has been allowed to remain in indigenous mythologies all around the world, it seems that that admission of a wider E.T. family was an admission that the Jewish and Christian religious authorities were not willing to make. Of all the lessons given by the Watchers, one that concerns much of the Book of Enoch is the lesson in astronomy. This is another aspect in which Enoch differs from the other Jewish texts. Astronomy or astrology, which were all part of the same thing at that time, not favorably looked upon in the Bible, but it's there as a theme in Enoch. Again, where there's a point of difference from the other Jewish writings, Enoch finds correlations in other world mythologies. The moment you listen to other world mythologies, you hear the same notes. Mayan astronomy is a byword for sophistication. Egyptian, Sumerian, think about the Dogon people with their knowledge of the Sirius star system. In Enoch, we're told about the movement of the moon around the earth, the 
Earth around the sun, the fact that the moon reflects the sun's light, the nature of eclipses and the cycles of the moon. How was the writer shown that? Did he see it in the flesh? Did he physically travel? Was it through an altered state of consciousness? Um, was he shown textbooks? Was it a remote viewing? By the time we're in the late chapters of the Book of Enoch, the suggestions are there that it was all of those. Among its most explosive claims is the book's account of the abduction of human females by 200 of the Watchers. Their offspring are described as giants. The name the Book of Genesis gives them is Nephilim. Greek legend calls them the Titans and mythologies all around the world tell their own versions of this intriguing episode. Writing in the first century of the Common Era, the Jewish historian Josephus refers to the ancestral memory of human abductions and hybridization unpacked by the Book of Enoch. Josephus refers to that as history, and he points to the existence of giants in his own time as material evidence of that ancient intervention. Now, it's interesting that he also notes that the Greek legends have maintained a written tradition of that story. He also refers back, of course, to Genesis chapter 6, where the story of abductions and hybridization is told so briefly, so swiftly, that it's quite, and with no introduction of these random characters turning up to do this, that it's quite clear that the writer of Genesis 6 assumes his readers already know this story from another source. Yet the narrative of human abductions is an aspect of the book which remains the hardest for many to process. Enoch may well be the Bible's first abductee, although he may have been a willing one. When we read chapters 1881, we see Enoch being given a year's notice before the watchers take him. If we go to Genesis and read chapter 5, verse 24, it tells us this about Enoch. It says, Enoch walked 365 years, and then the Elohim took him away. Now, that word Elohim means the powerful ones. So, the watchers in the book of Enoch are among the Elohim, the powerful ones, of the biblical narrative. If we go to Genesis 6... Uh, where we find the Bible's reference to the Watchers coming, it describes them as Bene Elohim, and that word means they are a kind of Elohim. So the Watchers of the Book of Enoch are Bene Elohim, or Elohim, in the biblical text. Now, if you dig a little deeper, you go to the source narratives on which those early biblical stories are based, uh, you're going to find yourself in the Sumerian texts, and they speak about sky people or star people. And among those people, 300 are dispatched to what they call stations in the stars, which I think we would call space stations. And their job is to work as observers. That's the word used in the Sumerian, observers. So watchers in the Book of Enoch, observers in the Sumerian narrative, I don't think that is a coincidence. 
So why didn't the book of Enoch make it into the canon of the Bible? There's a very broad consensus among biblical scholars today that the Hebrew stories of beginnings took their current shape through decisions and edits made sometime in the 6th century BCE. In Christianity, decisions were made from the 2nd century onwards that shaped up what was to become the New Testament and made the call to glue it to the Hebrew canon to create a Christian Bible. Now, all those decisions were taken on the basis of a monotheistic world view, and so the edits in the Hebrew scriptures were to monotheize them. And their worldview was that we are alone in the universe. And so when they found other texts, including the book of Enoch, where so much is going on that acknowledge other entities, off-planet entities, entities that seem to have intergalactic technology or even interdimensional technology, they could not admit those because in the language of the ancients, they simply presented too many gods. My book, Escaping from Eden, argues that this edit made in the 6th century BCE of the Hebrew canon may have solved the problem of too many gods, but by conflating the idea of God with these other ET entities, which in the Bible are just a translation away from being blindingly obvious, by doing that the editor has taken the ET narrative and pushed it almost out of sight. And at the same time, he hopelessly confuses how we understand God in the Bible, because we end up blaming God for things that were really the responsibility of E.T. entities in their interactions with ancient human beings. I believe that, correctly translated, the Bible is peppered from start to finish with non-human entities, Think about the Nephilim, the Anakim, the Elohim, the Bene Elohim, the Sky Council, the one like a human being in the book of Ezekiel. These are strands within the biblical tradition that the institutional Judaism and Christianity of the day did not want to do business with and just tactfully ignored. The book of Enoch, by being so specific about them, blows all that open. With a worldview that says there's no such thing as an E.T., monotheizing the canon of the Bible had to mean excluding these other narratives. Why was the narrative of ancient E.T. contact suppressed? What was so taboo about reporting the Watcher's role in our Great Leap Forward? Why was the narrative of human abduction and hybridization allowed to remain in other indigenous mythologies around the world, but excised from Judaism and Christianity? And what agenda did that secrecy serve? And are we entering a period where the veil of that secrecy is now being lifted. Thank you for watching The Fifth Kind. 
With ever-changing algorithms, updates, and censorship regulations on YouTube, this video and others like it could soon become much harder to find. If you like our work, and you'd like to know whenever we publish our latest videos, check out our official website at www.thefifthkind.com, where you can sign up to receive our latest newsletters, stories, and select featured content that is only available on alternative platforms. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Also, please like and share this video and help make sure this type of content stays around and is available for others who may be seeking it.